Welcome to Heels in the Courtroom, a podcast about successfully navigating law and life, featuring the women trial attorneys at the Simon Law Firm. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Heels in the Courtroom. I'm Elizabeth McNulty, and today I'm joined by Liz, Megan, Mary, and Amy. And today we're going to be talking about deposing a corporation. And as far as what we do, I think that this is probably one of the most powerful tools that we have in discovery. Since we represent individuals, we get to depose a corporation in most cases, like for product liability, med mail cases. And this is how we get what the corporation says because, you know, corporations aren't people. So to depose them, we have to let them pick a person. Anyway, we'll get into the details. But as far as deposing a corporation, it's a lot like written discovery, but you get to ask them questions a lot faster. And the process can generally be a little smoother because you get a lot more information right away. And the testimony in these depositions generally binds the corporation for not only this litigation, but also future litigation. So it's really important to get clear and good answers that can really help your case in even future cases. So the two rules that are covered here are Federal Rule 30B6, and then in Missouri, the rule is 5703B4, which covers the ability on how this works and what you need to do in order to do the notice and how the corporation has to designate a person for each category that you have within your notice. And if they're not a party to a case, then you have to subpoena them, but you still need to do the same kind of notice that goes over each topic that you want to ask them about in the deposition. So first, I want to know what everyone thinks, if there are specific types of cases where you decide to do a corporate rep, or if it's routine in all your cases where there's a corporate defendant or even a corporation involved, and you can subpoena them. So I do a lot of auto accident cases, and in the cases that I handle, there's almost always a corporate rep depot because a lot of times... Our client is suing a truck driver and also the trucking company at the same time. And so I personally love taking corporate rep depots. I think they're fun. I like the preparation for them. It's a very methodical process for me. So we take them in almost every case. Like I said, the defendant trucking company corporate representative depots are always based on our theory of vicarious liability. The company obviously was not physically in the accident, but their driver was. And so usually we'll depose the driver first and then we'll do the corporate rep of the trucking company. And I just personally like them a lot better because when you're talking to the driver, it's it's very factual. And I personally like the corporate reps because they know what they're talking about a little bit more and they've done these before, most likely, and they already have topics given to them, so they have a little bit more of a chance to prepare or at least think about answers that they might give to some of the questions I'll ask. So in my mind, they typically go a lot smoother, and they stay more organized, and for that reason, I like them because I'm very type A. You mentioned the notice and how, you know, they have the categories of the testimony. So let's talk about that a little bit, because under the rule, you have to prepare a notice, which is what the defendant will receive. And the notice has to describe with reasonable particularity the matters on which the examination is requested. 
you have to be very methodical about each category and what exactly you're asking for. And you really have to think out what the goals of your depot is and what you're trying to get out of it, because you need to include each category of testimony that you're asking for. And the purpose of that is so the corporation can pick out which person or persons they're going to put up to give that testimony so that they can also prepare them if they aren't knowledgeable on those certain topics. So does anyone have any particular strategies you use when drafting those kinds of notices? Do you use the same one for same types of cases or do you kind of start from scratch each time you draft one? Just to back up a little bit, if, if I have a case and there's an employee of any entity, whether it's an employee physician of a medical entity or it's a defendant driver for a pharmaceutical company or it's a driver for a, a trucking company, any any employee of any company, I'm probably going to take a corporate rep depot because I'm going to get particular information from the employee who might have engaged in the negligent conduct, but there also might be independent claims of negligence against the company, whether that's for negligent hiring, negligent retention, supervision, failing to have proper policies and procedures, something more on the administrative side, as well as having this person who might have engaged in negligent conduct work for them. So one of the reasons that I like to take the corporate rec depot is to just kind of come full circle with what my allegations are. I need to get a full picture of why was the employee doing what they were doing at the time? Is it because of a failing on behalf of the corporation? Maybe the corporation expects a driver, you know, to drive 20 hours in a 24 hour day or something, or, or they're trying to meet a quota or there's a policy or procedure that wasn't in place, so there was no rule for them to follow, and they should have had rules. I used to draft really specific corporate rec notices, and I did that thinking it would be incredibly helpful to the defense lawyer because the defense lawyer has exactly the information that I want to get. And oftentimes, the more specific I make it, even though I was setting myself up to be really specific with the court, thinking they'd object, but what I've changed my strategy in the last year or so, which is I keep it really broad. If I want to know a specific policy or procedure on a certain date, I might just ask about the topic of the policy and procedure in general. What that usually entails, Elizabeth, is I'll put together my notice pursuant to the rule. I'll put together a definition section, a testimony section of testimony I want them to talk about. And then there's a separate category where you can ask for document production. As you all know, corporate rep deposition notices have 30 days advance notice. So you give the company 30 days to not only pick someone to talk about the topics you want to know about, but also produce documents that you need to see. And then the goal, as you stated at the beginning, Elizabeth, is to just get binding admissions of the company and of the company's conduct and of the company's role. So I will try to keep those topics as broad as I can, knowing that in the deposition, you know, I can ask any question I want of the corporate representative or representatives, and the lawyer can always jump in and say, oh, you know, well, they're not answering this for the corporation, but personally, and quite frankly, that's okay. I can, I, I'll work out that battle later, but, you know, nine times out of 10, that doesn't end up getting taken up later because the person does know that they just don't want them answering the question. 
Well, and I think that's a good point that you brought up. You aren't bound by what's in the notice. Um, necessarily, if you ask questions what's outside of the notice, you might have to argue about whether that's a binding admission on the company or if that person was just testifying for their own personal knowledge. But I think that younger or less experienced lawyers might not realize that you don't have to just use your notice as you know the questions that you want to ask. You have a right to ask that witness anything that you want to ask during the deposition. And then you also mentioned motion practice about what happens when the other side isn't agreeable to what you've included in your notice. I've seen it a lot that they'll just lodge objections and think that, you know, the depot is continued, but that isn't necessarily the case. They have to file a motion to quash or for a protective order. And does anyone want to talk about how that works or any experience they've had kind of arguing those? They always kind of follow the same pattern, which is we send a notice it's broad, no question about it. We're hitting a bunch of different areas. The defense counsel argues that it's overly broad. Sometimes we can work it out. Sometimes we go before the judge before it can a deposition can begin. If there's some sensitive topics, I don't mind a protective order being entered. I'm happy to allow that to happen as long as it's reasonable and doesn't impede my ability to ask questions in this litigation. But Elizabeth, you'd asked earlier about, do you take them in every case? And I don't. I do a lot of medical malpractice cases. And if it really is an individual physician with an error in a surgery, that type of thing, it's not necessary in every single case. But if you have a case with a staff person in any kind of corporation, if it's um, a nurse in a hospital or a pharmacist in a pharmacy, you have to make it more than just simple human error. And I'm talking about MedMal. You do it all the time in product liability, and we can talk about that. But in MedMal, it has to be more than a simple human error. If it's a nurse who prescribed the wrong medication, if all you have at trial is that nurse, probably nice, overworked, whatever it is, saying she just pushed the wrong button, you know, you're going to lose some people. They're going to say, this is just, a, the, and by people, I mean your jurors. It's just a mistake. And a lot of people don't think a mistake is negligence. It is, but a lot of people don't think it is. So in those cases, I have to search for blame to go higher. Why did she make the mistake? Why did that happen? Was she overworked? Is that a systemic problem? Is the equipment confusing or programmed wrong? Did she have poor training? It really wasn't her fault. She just wasn't told how to do it right. There are so many things. Then you can see the ideas opening up for a juror or for the whole jury to say, well, I do kind of feel badly for this nurse, but the corporation is the defendant. The hospital is de the defendant. And they did a poor job. They set this up to happen. So in that corporate representative deposition, you have to get the best admissions you can. And a lot of that is going through their policies and procedures. And you see this a lot in highly regulated industries like trucking, like you guys have been talking about, like medicine. There are going to be policies and procedures for everything. And if you look really closely, you can probably find where a policy or procedure or regulation wasn't followed to the letter. And that's an important admission from a corporate representative, that there are policies. How were they developed? Who developed them? 
What changes have come to those policies? Where do they come from? How are the people trained to follow them? The other great thing, in addition to admissions on these key issues for a corporate representative, is documents. I find corporate representative depositions to be wonderful vehicles for the admission of great documents. And whether they're in discovery or found other places, if you can show marketing materials for a hospital that says they're the safest hospital in the region or some kind of crazy marketing thing that looks good to get people in the door, but can really be harmful to a jury when a really careless, reckless error was made, you may not have a vehicle to get that in through the nurse. She probably has never seen it before. or He's probably never seen it before. You have to find a corporate rep and you have to put that on your notice and somebody has to account for it. So I think that not every single case needs it. But if you have a case where you're not only trying to figure out what happened, but why it happened, then they can be very important and very helpful. And then have you ever had this happen where you get there, you've, you've done your outline, you're ready to depose the witness, you start asking them some questions, and you realize that they weren't prepared well, and they don't have any of the answers to any of the questions you're asking. So so what do you do then? You mean like every time? <laughs> right. I was going to say, this just happened to me. <laughs> well, then you have to sit there and think to yourself, what do I do? I say, well, why don't we go through and list off every single thing you've done to try to get the information first? Let's start there. Who have you talked to? Did you look at documents? Did they have any documents? And sometimes you find out more information there and it's good stuff that helps you. And then you say, okay, now let's go through the names of every single person who might have this information. And they give you names of people. So you just make a record of exactly what you're looking for look at your notice, let everybody know on the record that you had notice, you went to the judge, you have an order, sometimes there's a court order, lay out exactly what you're asking for, make a clear record that the person who they've produced to answer those questions has no, apparently no idea what you're talking about. And they've never heard even of the information you're asking about. And then you can get the transcript to then file another motion or set another corporate rep depot, but you know, I've learned that once that happens, once you have to get an order from the judge, it's just, they're never going to just say, well, we'll just bring the right person next time. As trial lawyers, we should always be keeping in mind, how can I use this to my advantage in front of the jury? And so my first tip is if you are taking a corporate representative's deposition, videotape it, always videotape it. You want to be able to play that video in front of the jury and you want the jury to see them sweat. That may not show up in a transcript. Uh, and by the time trial rolls around, they're probably going to be much better prepared. But when you have it on video and you see, you know, the CEO of this company kind of flopping around on answers, that can have a big impact on a jury. And so when you get there and if they're not prepared and they don't know the questions and as frustrating as it is that you're not going to get the answers to things, spin it to show that here we have this company that's being run by this individual who has no idea what's going on within his company. Of course, 
this accident or this negligence or this death occurred because you have someone who is steering the ship that doesn't know what they're doing or there's no one steering the ship. So absolutely make your record, get everything straightened out so you can take it to the court and and try to get the correct person there to get your questions eventually answered. But absolutely make a, if they're going to waste your time like that, make them pay for it. I agree with both what Mary and Liz said. I just had this happen to me recently where I was able to spin it in our favor because it was a trucking company and we were asking essentially about all of their policies and whether they train their employees and what kind of background knowledge they have about the employees that they hire. I was asking what I thought were straightforward questions about their employee policies, their employee handbooks, their hiring policies, things that I figured a corporation like that should have. And the corporate rep didn't know anything about these documents, was asking me what what I meant by any of these documents. I was like, you don't have any handbooks, policies, nothing. And I was able to, even though I got no substantive information out of that depot, I was able to get something that was just as valuable, which was they don't go through the hoops that they should have been going through. I don't don't even have to call it hoops. Just the basic steps to keep bad (laughs) things from happening. It's not jumping through hoops. It's following the rules. Did you follow the rules? And the first thing you got to figure out is, do you know what the rules are? Do you have any? Do you have any rules? Right. So it was it was frustrating to get in there and and not have any information to work with. But at the same time, it was able to be a positive thing in the end. Something that will happen is if there's an incident, whether it's at a hospital or it's an auto accident or a trucking accident case. One thing that has been coming up is, you know, how we always ask about their investigation into the incident or any reporting that was done and who were parts of those conversations. Something I'm hearing a lot more now is this this one-liner of, as soon as it happened, we turned it over to the authorities. And I've heard it in more than one case. And I've asked, who's the authorities? And they say, the insurance company and the lawyers. And then any conversation that the company has had, apparently, from the exact second it happened, a lawyer was on the phone. So then I can't ask what the conversations were. And it's, it's new to me because normally I at least have, I at least get to talk to maybe one other witness who ends up being another member of the corporation or hospital or whatever, another doctor who might've been in the room or talk to the nurse if, if it was a medication error or something. But lately the answer I've been getting in corporate rep depots is I haven't had any conversations with anyone at any time without the presence of an insurance adjuster and a lawyer. I'm like, well, all right, <laughs> you know, I can't, I can't ask about those conversations. So I'll ask, you know, every way from Sunday that I can to get information another way. But I, I don't know if you've experienced that in the past, but I have seen it become a kind of a repeat boilerplate answer that I'm getting from uh, corporate reps. In hospital cases, the peer review privilege is, in my humble opinion, abused meaning that I get those answers all the time. What was the investigation? Did you figure out what happened? And there is a statute in Missouri and in most states that protects any root cause investigation of a medical error from discovery because they don't 
want to discourage they meaning the law does not want to discourage hospitals figuring out why mistakes are made it is very frustrating to us because we'd love to know what their result was from their hands-on right there investigation i've had a hard time getting past that but the statute is very specific about you have to be on the committee it can't just be a random person talking to another random person so it's incumbent upon us to make sure that that the peer review statute was followed specifically but to more to your point is just basically lawyering up right the the first moment something happens they lawyer up unfortunately there's not a lot that can be done about the attorney-client privilege attaching to things but doesn't it make the jury wonder you can certainly exploit the idea that they lawyered up really darn fast they must have known something was wrong and they were in trouble So even though it's frustrating not to know specifically what those conversations were or what they found, I think you can get some traction with the jury making it look like there was a cover-up. Because really, that's exactly what it is. One of the cases that I had, as soon as I got that response, and it wasn't the first time I got it, but it was a pretty serious auto accident case that involved the employee of a company. And I just asked, so, I mean, you called the lawyer before anyone from your company went to the scene or asked how your employee was or saw if anyone was hurt. And so in my head, I'm just thinking like your top priority as the head of a corporation is not even to look out for your own employee, even though they're the defendant in the case. I I think that that looks bad, you know? It does. So that was the only question I could ask. But obviously, to your point, there's not much you can do if they say, I was with a lawyer, but I just tried to nail down a timeline to be like, it happened at, you know, 4 p.m. You were on the phone with an attorney at 4.01 and not at the scene? I think you did that exactly right. I think the jury would be suspicious that their only thought at that moment was to protect the corporation. Right, right. So I think now we can kind of talk about maybe some goals that you should have for when you're deposing a corporate rep that I think that would apply to generally most cases and when you're taking them. So because the admissions that they're making are binding, you want to talk about the elements of the case just to see if you can get any of those nailed down because then you won't have to prove them when you go to trial. And then along with that are facts that you can get established and admitted to here because again you won't have to waste time and prove those when you are going to trial another thing is i think that i include this in all of the notices just general information on the company locations products they sell and any of the people that work at the company that have knowledge of certain issues especially those within the notice and you can depose those people as individuals at a later date. I think that just to kind of get a feel for what other people within the company know, I think that can be really valuable. And something that we've also touched on is identity of documents, because I think in almost every case, you'll find that there are certainly documents that you've asked for and probably haven't gotten yet and that you might discover in one of these depositions that they have them, they've kept them, and they can hand them over to you at that point. So I think that this can be a great vehicle for getting not only binding admissions, but also really important documents. Does anyone else have any other goals that they can think of that they set in getting you know certain testimony in these depositions? I like to use the preparation time for a corporate rep depot because a lot of my cases are trucking accidents and we are 
deposing the corporation not only because they employ the defendant driver, but they're a party themselves because of the concept, the doctrine of vicarious liability. So for me, preparing for a corporate rep depot and drafting the topics and the notices, it's a chance for me to really lay out the elements of my case and making sure I'm getting really good, solid testimony admissions as to every single element of my case. Yeah, and also get what their defense is. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like, what's your side of the story, Mr. Corporation? And you you get to hear what their defense is going to be and learn a lot about how they view it. To Amy's point, sometimes it's mistakes happen. You know, mistakes happen. We did everything right. There's no perfect system. Mistakes happen. And then you learn what the defense is, you know, and it doesn't mean a mistake isn't negligent. It just means that they're just viewing it as a one-off mistake. Something that our office routinely asks for, or, or that I know many attorneys in our office routinely ask for, is kind of a structure of the defendant, learning maybe about the organizational structure. It helps us learn more about not only the structure of the entity, but what is it made up of? Is it all employees with one boss? Or is it like the name defendant might answer to a supervisor who then has three supervisors, who then has another supervisor. So you can, you look at a chart with people's names on it. And if you're in that deposition, they might produce an organizational chart that has other individuals' names on it at the company. And during the deposition, they might refer to those individuals. And so you can decide whether or not after that deposition is done, if you want to go ahead and depose someone else. Another way that that's been helpful for trial is that a document that you get in a corporate deposition notice, you might want to send a trial subpoena to the CEO of the company. And you might have not even taken his or her deposition yet. But as trial gets close, you're looking through your documents and think, you know what? I'd like to use the admissions that I got in my corporate rep deposition and ask these on the stand of the owner of the company. And that's not something that companies are real happy to or excited to see. You know, a trial subpoena served on the CEO of a big company, but we can do it. The law allows us to do that. We're able to, you know, hold someone's feet to the fire, so to speak, and address them directly about what happened to our client. And even better, you can tell them that their own company already admitted to all the stuff that you got in the corporate rep depot. I think that my biggest goal in every corporate rep deposition is to make whatever the negligence is bigger than just my client. This is not just a one-off accident or incident or you know someone made an error one time. No, this is clearly an institutionalized problem that starts with the head of the corporation and works its way down to harming, potentially harming, every patient that comes through or every driver on the road or every guest at this particular location it just happened to happen to my client, but that doesn't mean that it couldn't happen again. And in all likelihood, because it is an institutionalized problem, it will happen again. And that, I think, has a huge impact on the jury. And it goes back to what Amy was talking about earlier in a situation where, you know, maybe you have a really nice nurse. And, and I can think of one case in particular where the individual who had committed the error was a lovely person. I liked her after I took her deposition. I felt bad for her. And so 
in that moment, I realized that if we were going to be successful at trial, it had to be bigger than that. Just this one employee who made a huge error that really greatly harmed my client. It needed to be that this company not only failed my client, failed their patient, they failed their employees. And when you can make it something bigger than just your individual client, that has such a huge impact on the jury. And that really is the goal I have with every corporate representative deposition is, is to make sure that I walk out of there having painted this corporation, which is, you know, a faceless entity. It's, it's like you said, Elizabeth, it's not a person, but making sure that they really are the ones on trial when we inevitably go to trial. That's such a good idea, Liz. It, it almost reminds me of... Well, I um, learned it from Amy. <laughs> That's why it's a good idea. It's awesome because it just blows up your case. It just blows it up. And it makes it something stably that a company needs to care about when they don't care about it. It reminds me of in a corporate ref depot where it was a medical malpractice case and the error that happened, this corporate rep was adamant that it has never happened before. This has never happened before won't happen again, never, ever, ever happen, no history of it happening. And I'm thinking, okay, well, prove it. I mean, how do you know it's never happened? How many patients have you followed up with who left your office after they went and saw this particular doctor and had this done and see how they're doing today? And we ended up getting some really great discovery in that case, pursuant to a court order. And the thing I walked in the court with is the corporate rep depot to tell the judge, this is what we're going to have to do. The plaintiffs are going to go into the courtroom at trial. They're going to say never happened before, never happened before. And we're just supposed to sit on our hands and say, oh, okay, sounds good. So we got to do additional discovery into, which I don't think you always get to do in a med mal case, but it just, it played out nicely in this way where their defense was so strong on this never happened before theory that the judge let us do discovery into redacting all the information that needed to be redacted, but get a number of people that this actually might have happened to. And guess what? It happened before. So that didn't work. <laughs> that theory didn't work. Once you have more than one, that's enough for a juror to sit there in the same way that it that I look at it and say, I know that these aren't the only people that this is gonna happen to. You know, so it it's a really good way to kind of blow up the issue. And it's crazy to think that it comes down to sometimes a single deposition in a case. That's why these are so powerful, that corporate rep depots are so powerful. Right. I totally agree that that's such an important goal to kind of make the case bigger than just your client. And you're right, Mary, it's kind of sad to say, but not only does that best serve your client, because I think that we're all kind of self-interested being so like, well, could this happen to me? This has happened to other people. And I think that part of that, you know, the investigation that we do into other incidents is how you get these large institutions' attention and how you can kind of get them to change their policies if they don't have any, get them to add them, which I think is a really cool part of our job because we get to make like huge institutional changes and try to make sure that this doesn't happen to other people. And I think that corporate rep depots are kind of one step in, you know, getting to that point. 
One last thing I wanted to talk about, and I know that Liz, Megan, and Amy, you all have a little bit of experience on the defense side of things. So I was curious what this looks like from a defense lawyer point of view, because this is a really big obligation, having to choose the witness or witnesses for this and how to kind of prepare them. So do any of you have any experience with that? I can remember I did defense work for a number of years before switching sides, and I have a distinct recollection early in my career defending a really big case, along with obviously a couple of partners, and a very thorough corporate representative deposition notice was issued. And we, the defense team and the corporation executives spent a great deal of time finding the right person to sit for that deposition. And it was, we needed someone who was easy to look at, not gonna lie, easy to look at, well-spoken, somebody who could think on their feet, somebody who could be well-trained and could answer questions. I mean, we spent so much time getting that corporate rep prepared, even to the extent where, you know, different topics weren't necessarily under his purview or in his department, but we would load him up with the information, which wasn't improper. I don't think it was improper, but load him up with that information because we've chosen someone who fit all those categories, looked good, well-spoken, committed, loyal to the corporation, you know, all those things. And it was stressful. Just how we get stressed about our plaintiffs giving depositions because we're worried about what they may say or not say, it's 10 times worse for a corporation because as we've all been saying, our goals in corporate representative depositions is to make this bigger than just one case or one error. It's to expose a much larger problem and corporations know that too. So if you've got someone who isn't well prepared and gives away the farm, so to speak, that deposition is going to get passed along to other cases and used against that corporation for years. So the fear is real. I, I can tell you the fear is real. Amy, just to your point, I had a similar experience in that we spent a lot of time figuring out who the right person to testify would be. And one of the themes that always came up was that we wanted someone who knew enough, but not too much. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yes, that's a very good point. <laughs> that's hysterical. I think, having never been on the defense side, I can also think of a case where there's been a corporate rep who was just the most absolutely kind-hearted, nicest person ever on the other side of the case. And in that deposition, and I think that, that Amy, they probably had a similar thought process on choosing the corporate rep that you just explained because she she was just absolutely wonderful and all the information that she had, when I asked her any basis for it, she would tell me who told her the information. <laughs> yes. And it was very rarely hers. Yeah. Yes. It was just so funny because her position, I'm forgetting what her actual position was at the hospital, but it, I was surprised to look at her credentials and see that she was the one who they produced because she wasn't too high up in the ranks at, as far as administration goes, but she knew quite a bit about the internal process and procedure. But anytime I'd say, you know, and how long has that system been in place or ask kind of a global question, 
go, well, as far as I've been told, we've been using this system only for two years. And I'm like, well, who told you that it was only two years? She's like, oh, I said, I was so and so last week to go over all of this. It ends up being okay. But that's probably the thought behind having her produced is she made such an excellent, excellent witness. But she was limited in the information she knew because she had just had a sit down conversation with the person who probably should have been deposed in the case, but, but maybe didn't make the best witness. You cannot over-prepare for a corporate rep depot. I don't think you can. You just have to spend so much time understanding the entire corporation and the entire case. It's just, it can be a really big deal. Thank you everyone for joining us on our discussion on corporate rep depositions. I hope you all were able to walk away with some extra knowledge on how important these can be to your case. And as always, if you have any comments, we'd love to hear from you. You can visit us at heelsinthecourtroom.law. Thanks again, and we will talk to you next Wednesday. Amy, Liz, Mary, Erica, Elizabeth, and Megan would love to hear from you at comments at heelsinthecourtroom.law. And if you love Heels in the Courtroom, check out the other legal podcasts in the Simon Law Firm Library. John Simon's The Jury Is Out podcast focuses on lifelong learning to elevate your practice and dive into the legal drama behind America's first medical malpractice case against opioid overprescription in Results Don't Lie. Subscribe today. Subscribe today.